0: The Tablet Show, episode 41, with guest Aral Balkan. Recorded live Friday, June 29th, 2012. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Aral Balkan about mobile application design. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at TELERIK.com.
1: And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome
0: back to The Tablet Show. I'm Carl Franklin. Richard Campbell is here. We're all
1: here. What's up, man?
0: I am in uh, its summertime in Vancouver. Whenever that happens, good things go on, mostly involving smoking meat, of course.
1: And magic mushrooms that grow in the grass that you walk over and see uh, pink donkeys or something. Yeah.
0: Right? Nothing like, get, yeah, you can't mow your grass in bare feet. It's true. Yeah. That's more of the fall, honestly. First world problems, my <laughs> friend.
1: <laughs> How about you? You've been playing everywhere. I've been doing so much, but not just playing, but writing code, getting gesture pack going. I've sold 30 copies so far. It's nice. really good. Got a lot of happy customers. I moved one of the sound booths to my house, which is where I'm recording this today. Oh, cool. So this is POP Studio C, or maybe we should call it the auxiliary studio. The auxiliary studio. Yeah, the auxiliary. So anyway, it's, it's lots of fun. And, uh, like I'm, s- I'm just so busy with, with coding and with music and, and, uh, all sorts of good stuff. Yep. Kids are great. All right. Enough of that. Let's talk better know a framework. Love it. All right. What do you got? Well, today I'm pointing out something that everybody should know already. Mm-hmm. So those of you who are on top of things, you'll be yawning. And those of you who are wondering, where do I start? This is very, very important. If you go to tinyurl.com/winrtdesignguide, that brings you to a page on Microsoft's websites, uh, which is an index of user experience guidelines for Metro-style apps. Huh? So, if you are concerned as to, uh, you know, how to design your apps, and you know what are the things that you should do that will make them uh, look and feel like a real Metro app. This is the document. This is the this is the index to the document. So, Metro design style, touch interaction, snapping and scaling, contracts, charms and capabilities, uh, tiles and notifications, controls, roaming to the cloud, and fundamentals. So there's you know eight documents here that uh, that absolutely need to be read and digested if you're going to do any kind of
0: Windows Metro, Windows RT stuff. Well, this is the one, right? I mean, how many years have we been complaining that there was no design guides around stuff like Silverlight and WPF? Yeah,
1: Silverlight, WPF, it was just like, nope, free for all. Yeah. Go and
0: invent something. Yeah. But Metro has a plan. Metro has a plan. I like that. That makes me happy. Virginia Howlett would be happy. I like a plan. I'm a simple creature, really. Just give me a plan. Right. Right. So who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off the tablet show, uh, and this is from Tintinium, yeah. which is a great name. I love it. Uh, he says, hey, CNR, and he's brief. Uh, when I first heard about the Microsoft announcement, I admit I wasn't expecting much. and I presume he's talking about the announcement around Surface. Surface. Right. Mm. It was a nice surprise to see some cool hardware innovation coming from Microsoft. Some people have decried Microsoft for cutting into their OEM partners, but I think that the tablet is different is an appliance more than a personal computer it is an accessory for your life this is similar to how microsoft makes other hardware what people don't understand is that oems need a killer tablet from microsoft to make the platform ecosystem thrive it installs confidence in businesses to know that microsoft is fully backing tablets
1: and you know what i wouldn't be uh, apologizing for microsoft either they you know if it's if it's not an OEM model. It's not an OEM model. If they're becoming more irrelevant, then that's the way it's got to go.
0: Well, and I, yeah, I wrestle back and forth on that one. I mean, we talked about this in the show as well. Just this whole idea that Microsoft built a reference platform. There, basically, you've got to any OEM's got to do better than this if they're going to have a chance. Right. And that's good. I mean, we do have to set a guideline. Plus, now that we're getting into the price, the five hundred, six hundred dollar price range. The price of Windows is a big deal. And I think yeah. that's an interesting problem here is if Microsoft's still going to squeeze $80 out of a Windows license on a tablet, that's our significant portion of the price of the device. You know, they dropped Win 7 for netbooks down to 15 bucks. Wow. Uh, and I wonder if they shouldn't be doing that in the tablet space as well. I mean, that is part of the whole conversation here. But uh, uh, Tintinium is not done. He has another statement. Uh, wh- he goes on to say, When Apple made the iPad, they built on the back of iOS for the iPhone. They had the benefit of an ecosystem. Microsoft is playing catch-up, and they have an army of developers who love the .NET platform. However, if we remember, the iPad was decried as just being a big iPhone. They deliberately didn't make it an OS X tablet. Along the same lines, I think Microsoft is smart to limit the lower-end RT to Metro only. However, I almost feel like they're making a mistake releasing a Pro. Pro. I just don't know if it dilutes the surface too much. Rather, they seem afraid to go to a pure tablet UI. I would love to hear your guys' opinions on these things. Their announcements are no doubt delayed. A few iPad purchases, but if the hardware disappoints, and he just left it there.
1: My opinion is uh, more choices is better because, you know, that's where the market is today. But if the market wants Windows on an iPad-like device,
0: they got it. Yeah, and I think there. while it doesn't directly affect the consumer up front, the whole Sanofsky concept of a common kernel across the phone with Mm -hmm. WinPhone 8, across the tablet in, in Pro, uh, across regular desktop machines, and even apparently the next generation Xbox, mm-hmm. w- does benefit consumers as a whole because it means everything will rev together. The I'm kernel will update together. That's a big deal.
1: I think it's we got to call it four screens in the cloud now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, regardless, uh, whether we agree with you or not, if we read your comment on the show, we will send you a rare and precious. Tablet Show mug. A much coveted and not decried. Yes. To use one of his words. Indeed. So Tintinium, a mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a mug, you can write a comment on the tablet show website at thetabletshow.com or send us an email at .netrocks at Franklin's dot net.
1: Well it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest, arrow Balkin. He's an experienced designer and developer working to improve the world through design that empowers, amuses, and delights. Also gave a great keynote at the Norwegian Developers Conference a few weeks ago. Welcome to the Tablet Show, Arl.
2: Oh, thank you so much, guys. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's almost an embarrassment to me that we've never done a regular show with you before. It's always (laughs) been at the conference, typically in DC. We get together, because we always have such a good time together. Yes, we do. And do a little 20-minute nugget or something like that. So, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Well, thank you. It's lovely to be here. You know, first of all, I really loved your slides, and I take it you did that
1: yourself. Yeah. And was that all PowerPoint, or or did you use any kind of other tools? Because... There were some of the, the fades and wipes and effects that you were doing that were pretty sophisticated. And
2: <laughs> now I, I, try not to use the P word in public, especially when there are children around. Yes. Um, now that, that was all keynote. Um, but I, I, I just try to keep my slides as simple as possible, really. Yes. I mean, if you notice, they're mostly just images. Yep. Um, and, uh, you're right. I do sometimes use transitions, but, uh, it's, it's, it's usually very understated the way i see it and the type of talks that i do the slides are just a reinforcement uh sometimes they're the counterpoint to a joke for example um but they're not meant to like if you if you actually saw the slides by themselves they wouldn't mean anything
1: and i wanted to bring that out because there were they did not look like powerpoint slides they no. you know uh, i love the f- i love having one word on a slide or a <laughs> picture you know, something that illustrates, because the, the biggest problem we have as presenters, and this gets right to the heart of what we're talking about today, design, that the biggest problem is you put a sentences up there in a bullet list, and then you're talking, you you know, you have that cognitive dissonance happening. People can't do both at the same time.
2: People can only concentrate on either you or the slide at the same, at, at one time. Yeah. And so you're competing with your slide. And beyond that, I mean, if you could you know, print out your slide deck and give it to someone. And if they can make sense of it, if they can get most of your presentation from there, you've created a document. That's not that's not a slide deck anymore. That's a document. You've that written is. a book. Yes. Um, and that's a very different medium.
1: So I guess, you know, the next thing that comes to mind is, well, if you're doing an Errol Balkin kind of keynote where you're talking about good design, bad design, here's a few examples. Um you know there isn't a lot of technic lists of technical things that you need to know, like there are in many technical talks. What is the and I know you've done a lot of technical talks as well. What is the challenge of presenting that technical material with slides without you know giving the information but without creating lists of things and rules and stuff like that do you sometimes you have to go there
2: so when you're talk when you're giving a technical talk that is that's
1: the yeah. question yeah.
2: Yeah, well, um, it is harder. It's much harder to give a technical talk that also doesn't put the room to sleep. Um, One thing that I've seen done, and it's very hard to do, but I've seen a few people do it really well, is to live code. Um, if you're if you're talking about, say, especially if you're talking about a subject that's interpreted, like, say, JavaScript or a Lua-based thing, um, I did a conference last year called Update here in Brighton, and Seb Lee Delisle, who was an old-school Flash person, and now he's doing a lot of creative JavaScript stuff, um, he did a talk where in half an hour he built the gist of Angry Birds, by live coding it, mm. but Seb's got this awesome style where he's, you know, he's got this self-deprecating British humor, um, and he doesn't copy and paste stuff, he's live coding, so he, if he makes a mistake, that kind of becomes part of it. it, he makes a joke out of that, that can be really engaging if done right. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I think the rule of thumb is, don't use bullet points. Yeah. If you find yourself resorting to bullet points, just remember, every bullet point should be a slide. And then right. if you end up with too many slides, then cut down what you're trying to say. Right. You can't really teach a concept in a 45-minute talk. Mm. Um, it's not going to be possible. You can show people better ways of doing things, worse ways of doing things. You can lead them down a path that they can then, you know, travel down themselves afterwards. You can give them pointers. You can't really teach them anything. It's not a workshop. It's not a, it's not a course.
1: So um, one technique that I've used, and I I agree with you, I most of my talks and even the classes that I've taught have been live coding with very minimal slides. Um, most of the people that I talk have talked to appreciate that, but sometimes you know you get the academic types that want that want all the technical information and you know whatever. I think maybe the ch- the thing is to present people with a place to go to get all the details. And, and say, we're not going to cover the details. I'm not going to give you lists of technical things that you, you know, that you have to remember right now so you can go, cause nobody's going to take all the stuff they learned right now and go code from their head and what you saw. So here is a website where I'm, where we're going into all the technical stuff. Let me give you the big picture and maybe do some code on the fly, as you say.
2: Exactly. That's yeah. that's a really good thing. And also, if you ever get to watch one of Leah Veru's talks, she was also at NDC. Um, she's got a great system where um, she basically created her presentation system in JavaScript and HTML. And if she's talking about CSS, she's um, she's got the system built where she can just. Illustrates, say, that, uh, the, the point she's trying to make, just that one line of code, for example, mm. and it immediately updates. It's, it's like a REPL. Um, and so people can see the cause and effect of what you're doing. I think that's very important.
0: What I loved about what she did there is that she was actually sort of bouncing between the presentation and the code without the bounce.
2: Exactly. Because one of the worst things you can do is like have a presentation and keynote and then come out of it and then go back into it. Yeah. That's so jarring. For you as a presenter, yep. and for the audience.
0: Yeah, it's just that disorient. She got rid of the disorientation moment. I thought that was very cool.
2: Exactly, and I'd say you know take that as a rule of thumb. Either stay in a presentation in your presentation software, or stay out of it, but don't go back and forth.
1: Before we get into this um, user experience thing, uh, just to to wrap this up, do you think that sort of that TED as a conference has sort of upped? The uh, raise the bar for all presenters everywhere in terms of because you look at a TED presentation and it's nothing like anything that we've been used to in the last 10 years of going to conferences and you know what I'm saying?
2: yeah, I do exactly. And yes, you're right. It has. It has raised the bar, and you have to realize everything that's involved in that. It's not just because TED somehow happens to find the best presenters in the world um, and put them up there. They find very interesting people, people with you know very interesting ideas to share, as their tagline goes. Um, but what they do. And I, I, I saw this firsthand as I was involved in the TED at London process, which was the auditions for TED Global for next year, um, which I audition, auditioned for about a month or two ago. Um, what they do is they actually train the speakers. So even for TED at London, where we were going to do our auditions, um, we all met the day before and they took us through basic speaker training. Um, they gave us pointers. They watched each presenter present and give pointers, you know, which is so important. When I was doing update, I had a general rehearsal the day before. You know, we practiced how people come on stage and off stage. We had a stage manager. So it, it it's, uh, again, they care about the experience. And if you care about the experience, then you're going to, um, you know, do a few things that, that make sure that that, 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 those talks are so polished mm. it's all about the care that goes into it um it's not a magical thing that just happens it's just because there's a lot of hard work sometimes i mean i've heard that they they've sometimes worked with uh, speakers for up to a year to get them up to scratch for that 18 minute talk wow. and that's exactly the kind of you know uh attention to detail that you need just like in anything else
0: yeah, it sounds like a very intense process, the way that they actually train people up for what we would consider an extremely brief talk. But if anybody's watched a TED Talk, clearly they know that's 18 minutes of goodness. Serious.
2: Exactly, exactly. And, and 18 minutes is a long time when you're, when you're giving such a polished talk.
1: This portion of The Tablet Show is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. Hey, can you ever have too many free tools to complement your development skills? I didn't think so. So our friends at Telerik are giving you now more than 30 free products for application development, automated testing, agile project management, and content management. And we're talking free-free. Not a trial, not a demo, but free, complete products supported by a community of over 440,000 developers at Telerik Forums. From free ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, and Silverlight Controls, to the free ORM solution and automated testing framework, to free agile management tools and content management systems. All of these and more are available to you for immediate download at Telerik.com slash stuff. Most of the free products can be used for commercial purposes and give you access to supplemental support resources such as documentation and forms. Go to Telerik.com slash stuff now and take full advantage of the available free-of-charge products. And don't forget to thank them for supporting The Tablet Show.
0: Hey, Errol, you know, on Twitter, we were going back and forth on this a while ago. Uh, the Your concerns around the problems of phone gap, I think we came up with the word phone gapization.
2: Phone gapization, <coughs> yes. I have this um, uh, terrible habit of, of, of creating um, these bastardized words sometimes.
0: Nice. What's the issue with phone gapization? What are you talking about?
2: Well, okay, here's, here's my, my issue with, um, with not so much possibly PhoneGap itself, especially as it was initially created and in its initial goals, which was to not exist. Right. So PhoneGap, when it was originally created, was meant to be just that. Something to fill in the gap for web applications that needed access to device APIs. Um, that they just didn't have in the browser. So they thought, all right, well, if we wrap it up in a native wrapper, um, if we put it into a web view inside a native wrapper, then we can have two-way communication between that web view and provide access to a web application um, to to local device uh, APIs and and to device features. Um, Of course, at that point, the app stops being a web app because it's not served from the web platform. It becomes this Hybrid application that we're talking about, Um, and there are quite a few hybrid apps out there. I mean, hybrid, you know, can vary from something that's just a web app wrapped in a native wrapper, all the way to just using, you know, web technologies to for display purposes, for presentation purposes. If you have a a document being displayed inside your app, for example, Um, and my real issue is currently with where they're going with their marketing, especially since they've been bought by Adobe. um, Like if you go to PhoneGap.com right now, Mm, initial sentence that describes PhoneGap says, PhoneGap is an HTML5 app platform that allows you to author native applications with web technologies. And that single sentence contains so many things that I have an issue with. I mean, for one thing, it says it's an HTML5 app platform. I know of one HTML5 app platform, and that's the web. Right. It's not really an HTML5 app platform. Um, it allows you to author native applications. Well, it, you really have to stretch what you mean by native application to, for that to be true. Do, do, you, do you end up with a native binary? Yes. Is that what a native application is? I don't think so. Hmm. I think a native application uh, is something way more than that. It's an application that conforms to the culture, the norms uh, of the platform that it's being built for, whether that's iOS or Android or Windows Phone. So you can't just take a a web app, wrap it in a native wrapper, and have that same app run on Windows Phone, for example, and iOS, and say that that's native because they're going to. It's going to be the same experience and and if you've optimized it perhaps for iOS let's say you have let's say you've managed to and it provides an all right experience there it's going to be completely foreign on Windows phone because the UI paradigms are completely different
1: so what you're saying a native app is if i create a, a an iOS app for the iPhone maybe i use mono uh, you know mono touch or maybe i use iOS tools and I deploy that through the you know through the normal channels, and it has all of the the things that are specific to that OS built in, and it's making calls to those. Whereas PhoneGap is you know making a button in a browser essentially instead of a native button.
2: Yeah, and and people take yeah. this even further. Um, they use they sometimes use UI frameworks, web based UI frameworks that make the components look like native components, say on iOS. Let's say I use something like JQ Touch, and I made my components in my web app look like they belong on iOS. For one thing, they're only going to look that way. They're not going to behave like the iOS components. So right. I call this like um, uh, wolves in, in sheep's clothing because <laughs> um, they look a certain way but they behave differently. And that's, that's a usability faux pas, a, a very fundamental usability faux pas. If something looks a certain way, it should behave that way.
1: Mm-hmm. You could also call it a sheep in wolves club. <laughs> 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 because, you know, when you hit that button, you're going to wait because, you know, it's downloading HTML.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's and, a and, sheep. And, and, and the most important thing is when you tell people, hey, you can make native apps with this, that's kind of what you're implying. And and if you look on their About page, it says, well, you know, what do you do with PhoneGap? Three simple steps. Build your app once with web standards. Two, wrap it with PhoneGap. Three, deploy to multiple platforms. And that's, you know, yes, it will run, but will it run well? Hmm. Will it conform to the culture and the norms and the conventions of each platform that it's running on? What would you do if you launched an app on Windows Phone and it looked like an iPhone app? Is that a great experience?
0: Well, and interestingly enough, right in the news this past week or so, Facebook's talking about they're rewriting their app completely native for devices because they have been doing this hybrid thing. I don't know if they're using PhoneGap or not, and they're not happy with the performance.
2: Yeah, and and there's an example of an app that was actually optimized. That's actually been optimized for iOS, so they didn't just make it a web app Mm -hmm. and then, you know, go, go to PhoneGap build or whatever it is and then get this native binary and boom everyone has that no they actually optimized and then still still i mean it's one of it's 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 an app that i hate to use on my iphone it's still better than their mobile experience of their website i think on my iphone but um i hate using that app because i just have to wait for everything because of the way they they built it and possibly they could have optimized it more and and given a better experience but i think it's telling that even facebook with all their resources ha- have decided to do this
0: And it's part of this battle, and I don't know where you fall in this battle, that really, if you're going to take advantage of a platform, you've got to build a native app?
2: Well, I think you need, if you're going to really take advantage of a platform, you need to adhere to its culture, its norms, and its convention. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is through a native app. Okay. Uh, And it depends on the type of app you're building also. This is true for um for apps that uh, are not immersive for non-immersive applications. So what do I mean by that? An immersive application like a game or an ebook, you can get away with not using native technologies because you're creating a new world. Right. Games have their own worlds with their own rules anyway. So it doesn't matter if you don't use the native components, it doesn't matter uh as much. You can get away with it. And and if you look at it, technologies like Unity 3D um, and uh, Corona, uh, that lets you—that they're primarily used for games. They're doing really great, sure. and the apps built with them are doing
0: really great. Yeah, because it, it is a when you're in a game space, you're in a totally different UI. But you know, you really hit me right there with this. Is there any application on a mobile device, specifically a phone, that should be immersive? Because if you're mobile, you're mobile. Like you've got other things going on. You'd never want to be immersed in your phone.
2: Well, I, I don't think you can say that because yeah. I don't think that you can imply context from the device. Just because you know someone's on a mobile phone... You can't imply context. You can't imply that they're, you know, rushing to work and they want to get things done as quickly as possible. I sit on my couch with my mobile phone for hours sometimes. It's not something I'm proud of. (laughs) Um, I I blame Infinite Scroll and Twitter for that mainly. Um, But sometimes I'm just watching TV, say, and I have my phone with me or I'm playing a game on my phone and I don't care how long it takes. I'm at home.
1: Or you're on a train to work and listening to the tablet show and doing a crossword puzzle.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> and we happens. can't really imply
1: that. <laughs> so many things you could be doing. So I guess what it means is that if you're going to if you're evaluating PhoneGap, you really need to weigh the benefits, which are I can, you know, write it once and deploy it on all these devices against the the drawback, which is it's not gonna look like a native app.
2: Yeah. And I think you have to ask yourself, you know, is it more important? that we are first to market, let's say you've got an app and you're first to market on these seven platforms, I think it is, that PhoneGap supports. Mm -hmm. Is it first to market that matters or is it best in market? If you don't have any competitors, then it probably doesn't matter what you do. But the moment you get competitors, what happens? So what happens if you've deployed onto these seven platforms and then someone, a competitor on iOS, for example, comes up with this beautifully optimized native application that blows yours out of the water? Um, you've lost the platform.
1: Yeah, it's nine platforms, by the way. Just looked it up.
2: Is it nine now? Yeah. Okay,
1: it's iOS uh, iPhone 3G, iOS iPhone 3GS and newer, Android, OS 5.0, OS 6.0 plus. I don't know what that is.
2: I think they've they've kind of lumped all the iOS ones into one. On their main site, it says the only open-source mobile framework that supports seven platforms. All right,
1: so that's, that. yeah, they're lumping iOS and OS 5 and 6 together. WebOS, right. WP7, Symbian, and Bada. Beta yeah. or Bada? Bada? Bada. Bada, I believe. Bada, Bing. And
2: again, the thing is not to get something running. That's not the end goal. It's for your app to run well. Yeah. And and I, and I keep coming back to that example, like, between iOS and Windows 7, because sorry, Windows Phone, because they're so different. Mm-hmm. They're so different that if you saw an app that looked like an iOS app on Windows Phone, that you'd just be like, what the heck? And if you saw a, a Windows Phone app, an app that looked like a Windows Phone app on iOS, you'd be similarly surprised.
1: All right, so tell us about PhoneGap Build.
2: Oh, PhoneGap Build? Right, that's, um, that's Adobe's uh, product uh where um it's integrated into Dreamweaver C S six now as well. Um and they basically it's it's a cloud based uh solution for compiling these native apps. Oh. So say you have Dreamweaver C S six, you can create your app using web technologies, press a button, and then it goes off to their servers, they build it, they send you the native binaries back.
1: And what's the benefit of that versus having the compiler on your desk?
2: Um I don't know, ease of use, I guess. They're they're probably targeting um People who maybe would find that daunting, quite possibly. It, it's also it also builds different binaries for all of these various platforms so unless so if you don't have those platforms to build on, uh, that would be an advantage as well.
1: Oh, so if you're developing a PhoneGap app and you want to deploy it on Android, you actually have to have an Android device?
2: Well yeah, the way the way it, it does it, it wraps it in a native binary and, and uh, all it's doing really, say on iOS, is um, it's creating an Xcode project, and inside of that Xcode project, there's a web view. That web view is where your web project, which is part of your Xcode project, is being loaded. I see. And then there's two-way communication between the native app and the web app. So
1: you do have to have licensed development environments for all of these places. Yeah, for all these yeah places.
2: so uh, the build product that they have um, gets rid of that. So okay. uh, well, you know, I mean, it adds a fun. lot of value, but again, it, it's the type of development that this is encouraging that I have an issue with. Because if, you, you if you're supporting seven platforms, then you've got to have those devices to test on. It's yeah. not enough to test in a simulator or an emulator. Yeah. Um, you have to understand the culture of these platforms if you're going to build optimized user experiences for them. Uh, it's not, it just doesn't matter if an app runs on a certain platform, if it doesn't run well.
0: But this really begs the question, where does this leave HTML5?
2: Well, that's the thing. I mean, I do a lot of training, so I I I get to talk to, I mean, my focus primarily is consumer, but I get to talk to a lot of people in enterprises through the training that I do. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this in the past year or so, that people, especially going on HTML5 courses, when I ask them what they're doing, they I've heard this so many times, it's not to build a website, but they're thinking of using PhoneGap to build native apps. Um, and, and I can only, I mean, this is my forecast, this is my personal opinion on this, but I think that these projects are going to start failing within this year, hmm. or so if they haven't already, some of them have. And I think that this is going to give HTML5 a bad name, and web technology is a bad name, because of the way it's being marketed, because they're saying that it's an HTML5 app platform. Um, people are not going to say, oh, our PhoneGap app failed. They're going right. to say our HTML5 app failed, because I've already heard this. Um, and, and you can see even in the Facebook apps reporting online, people are talking about the HTML5 app. It's not an HTML5 app. And I think this is going to give web technologies an HTML5, it's going to have a negative effect on, the, on, on their perception.
0: Yeah, you're sullying HTML5 and what the native experience, the, or na- is, how do you describe this? Native experience of HTML5 or natural experience of HTML5?
2: I don't know. I mean, if you build a web app and you just wrap it up in a native binary and you put it out there, I would call that a Franken app.
0: Well, I like <laughs> hybrid for that. But, but I mean, hybrid
2: is just so overloaded. Yeah. Hybrid could mean anything. Hybrid could mean that you use a web view in one part just to render a document inside your app which is great, mm-hmm. fine. I mean, use web technologies for what they're good for. Or hybrid could mean you build a whole app using web technologies and then and then just wrap it up in a native wrapper. Um, and I, I think that, I would call that more a Franken app.
1: So if you, I guess there is a case, though, where PhoneGap would work, and we touched on it earlier, whereas if you have an immersive app that sort of does redefines its own UI kind of like a game or something like that yeah that could look the same on all platforms and exactly that did not need to take advantage of the user interface elements
2: I completely agree I wrote about 10,000 words on this subject for Smashing Magazine recently um, and if you go to the link is forward slash web or native um, and you have a lot of time on your hands and, and no social life you can read that um, but that's exactly what I say there I mean there are values Valid use cases for these sort of cross-platform technologies mm-hmm. that don't use native components, you know, as opposed to cross-platform technologies that do use native components, like Mono, for example. Um, but I don't think that Adobe's marketing for PhoneGap is currently making that clear. I think it sounds like a magic bullet. You know, oh, you've got a web app, great, you can have native apps on all of these platforms. You don't have to do anything else, and that's not true. You know, it's not about write once run anywhere. It's about write once optimize everywhere.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we're, this is the same big lie we've heard over and over again on different platforms over the years.
2: Exactly. I mean, look at Java. You Mm -hmm. know, Um, it's, it's, it's been the same thing over and, and, and the ones that I, You know, the cross-platform technologies that do work for non-immersive apps are the ones like Mono. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think uh, Accelerator is taking a different approach. You know, they're allowing people to write JavaScript, but then instantiating native components. Um, But it's those sort of things for non-immersive applications that work. For immersive applications, yeah, of course. You know, it doesn't matter if it conforms to the culture and norms of the native platform. It's probably better that it doesn't.
0: The distinction there, then, is the difference between computational logic and UI elements, because that's the split that Mono has.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'd say that's a fair assessment, yeah.
0: So, I mean, this gets back to, I guess, your Ballywick, which is the whole user experience thing.
2: Exactly. I mean, if you if you have an app, and it looks like a native app, it's mm-hmm. got a native icon, say, on iOS, when you tap it, you have certain expectations based on every other native app that you've used. Right. And then if you get a boom, a web UI, you know, you may not even understand that as a user. You know, we talk about them in these terms. You may not understand it, but you'll just feel like there's something wrong. Why doesn't it act? Why does it behave like all these other apps?
1: The first time I actually used an HTML5 app on an iPhone, it looked just like an iPhone app. And I I did have to, you know, pin it and do a couple of steps to make it sort of look like a native app, right? but it was clear that it wasn't when I, you know, hit a button and nothing happened.
2: Exactly. It looked like a native app. It didn't behave like one.
1: I thought my phone was broken.
2: Mm. Well, there you go. There you go. That's that's exactly it. And that's what we should be trying to avoid.
0: I guess the question is, can we actually evolve a toolkit in HTML5 that lives in these wrappers that does look like the native app? Or is there any point in doing that? Why not just code natively?
2: No, I think that's the thing to avoid. You can, you can very easily make it look like a native app, if that's your goal. You can, you can skin it to look like a native app. But again, you can't make it behave like that because there's one level of abstraction, the browser or the web component that's running your web app. And so you can't actually ever get it to behave exactly like the native components.
0: If you
1: do, you're playing catch-up because, you know, the next version of the OS comes out and it behaves a little bit differently and now you're changing your behavior. Now, it might seem like an easier thing to take something like a single code base and try to recompile it to native code on all these things. Right. But then we're back to the whole myth of write once, run anywhere, which everybody knows is just impossible.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And And if you get to the point of writing once and optimizing everywhere... So you need to budget for that, because mm-hmm. I think what people are doing is they're believing the hype, and they're going, oh, right, we can support seven platforms, and we'll budget zero extra for supporting those seven platforms. No. Mm. You need to budget for every platform to optimize on those. And then you have to ask yourself, um, well, does this technology that we're using allow us to go that last 10% or 20%, or will we hit bottlenecks that we just can't go beyond? and i'm seeing that a lot with um, with projects that have used these sort of wrappers as well where people get very quickly up to 50 60% maybe but then they can't optimize further mm-hmm. they hit hard limits because of the browser component
0: and yeah you get into a quality issue there the, and and a cost issue like maybe you could get another 10 15% along but you've raised the price so much at that point you might as well have worked in the other platform
2: exactly and I think these need to be made clear from the outset, because also, especially, um, I'm hearing from people who, you know, who, who may be working on these projects, uh, especially at their talks, recently. Um, things like, oh, this web versus native debate—it's just bullshit. Who cares about that? No, it's just, oh, it's so tired. And I, I, I think that's harmful. You know, the choice of development platforms. Uh, are your choice of materials when you're building a product? And it's part of the design, the de- it's part of the design process. It's a design consideration. So it's not this tired, drawn out conversation, really. It's part of the design process, and it has a fundamental effect on your development process.
1: So, speaking of design, uh, and also of trying to avoid, you know, absolute statements this is good, this is bad. Mm. Um, you know, you can, like, I don't know who that was, but one of the justices on the Supreme Court, when asked about obscenity, said, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. Right. You know, I don't know what bad design is, but I know it when I see it. Right. Or I don't, uh, you know, I don't know what good design is, but I know that I'm enjoying this application, and I'm not enjoying this one. Are there any kind of fundamental rules of design that you can actually uh, apply Without, without It Depends?
2: Yeah, I think there are. I think um, understanding that design is a process, not an end in and of itself, is very important. Because some people think they can just buy a design, and it's not how it works. And, and that design is the process of trying to understand people so you can design for them. Design is the right. process of understanding people so you can make products for them that they love to use. Um, and so that understanding people part of it is really important. So there are certain things, like empathy trying to empathize with your user more than anything, trying to think about what the user is going to do with your application first and foremost and continuously and not about solving your own problems because we do that a lot. Yeah, we do. You know, some people start a new application and they're worrying about their database structure. You're solving your own problem there. You're thinking about the wrong thing. This is what we call inside-out design, which is bad versus outside-in, where you're thinking about the user and how they're going to use it, and not thinking about your own problems at all.
1: So think about the process. Think about if, you know, if talk to the get the user stories, what would you want to be able to do in a very general way? Right. And understand how the process flows for for each uh, entity that's involved in the process.
2: And then you might look at it and go, wow, this is going to be hard to implement on our end, you know? Because we've really optimized for the user, but that's okay. Right. That's when you start solving those hard problems.
1: Well, in simplifying too. Like I I can't tell you how powerful it is to just take a couple extra hours to think through is there a simpler way to do this? You know, exactly. are we are we doing are we making it more difficult than it actually needs to be?
2: And even maybe taking another step back and thinking about the whole system, what we call systems design. Not just being caught up in the UI of whatever app we're building, but to think, how does this app integrate with the with the process that it, it aims to help right. or with the whole organization um, and, and and then go, well, maybe we don't need these elements in the app. Maybe they can be handled elsewhere in mm. this process because it's not always something that you need to put on a screen.
1: True. Interesting. So uh, in, in terms of designing UI, you know, we, we talk about designing process, but in terms of designing UI... Um uh, there are some fundamental principles of design like simplicity and and understandability and uh, you know, trying to avoid cognitive dissonance and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um like uh, we were talking about your slides and and how really nice they were at NDC. When Thank you're me. when you're designing do you have any particular uh guides or besides the style guides that uh, that you need for a particular platform do you have any overall arching bibles of design that you like to that you go back to again and again?
2: I definitely think that the the style guides for various platforms are very important. Um, they're very important not in a we should adhere to them religiously sense. But you should understand them so that you can understand when you need to deviate from them and deviate from them in an educated way, not deviate from them because you're ignorant of them. Um, so I, I think especially on platforms where they have such strong style guidelines, it's very important to be aware of, of them. And I do refer back to the human interface guidelines on the iOS platform very regularly when I'm designing. Um, other than that, I don't think there are any silver bullets. I think, if anything, there are processes yeah. that I refer back to, games that you can play as part of the design process um, that, uh, that, that basically help you to create a conversation around what you're trying to design. And that's really important, to keep thinking about the user in different ways. And that's why, you know, we have all of these design games um, that we play. You know, things like, I don't know, brainstorming and body storming or even things like card sorting or cognitive mapping. Um, these things that we do... Are, are basically games ways of exploring the problem domain so that we can come up with creative solutions so I think it's the processes that are important
1: so you're actually talking about design patterns for design
2: well yeah not necessarily design patterns in the sense that they're you know that we know in, in code which of course came from architecture um, I think I think in fact that's probably quite a dangerous concept because it implies that there's some sort of a prescriptive, generic, uh, Lego-style thing that you can take and apply. Right. Um, there are probably you know, practices that you can, you, can, you can steer towards or away from, but the thing about design is, unless you're building something that's template-based, you're solving a unique problem. And it requires a unique solution. And that's why that process is so important, to understand the problem, to work through it, and to create that solution.
1: So you mentioned a bunch of games that you play or exercises that you go through. Um, Are these listed somewhere in a resource that we can point people to?
2: Well, actually, just very recently, I discovered a book. I just stumbled upon it. Um, It was, uh, I think, published this year. So very, very new. Um, And it's called Universal Methods of Design it's by bella martin and uh, bruce hannington and uh they've collated about a 100 of these methods uh these these games basically that as i call them that you can play you know uh things like ab testing or or collage or um eye tracking etc that you can use um, as part of the design process um and it's uh it's by the same people who published the universal principles of design um that's also a really great book and one that I refer back to um quite uh quite frequently
1: now is th- are they talking about design with a capital d or is it particular to software
2: um uh the universal methods of design is mostly um it, it it's mostly for designing software um but uh of course, all of these things are, well, some of them are based on different disciplines, have been born out of different disciplines, have been adapted um, to to design. And I think it's, it's it's also stuff that you can use in general when you're designing. Because what we do in, in software design is very close to product design. It's it's almost like virtual product design,
1: basically. Oh, ah, okay. Yeah, it looks pretty good. I'm looking at it right now on Amazon. Yeah, I like the idea of having exercises to do so that it stimulates your, your, your creative response to a problem.
2: Exactly, and gives you some sort of a channel to explore it. Yeah. I think that's important, but not so much design patterns, because I think that, again, people, people sometimes are lazy and they want these magic bullets, you know? And I think this is why snake oil salesmen through the ages have made a killing, Because they want this magic bullet that just solves all their problems. Give me a few design patterns that I can just, you know, plug one after another and I have a great design. It doesn't work that way. You know, you can't just have a checklist that you can go through and then you get something that's usable and and a beautiful experience. You have to actually worry and think about these unpredictable uh irrational emotional creatures that you're designing for which are human
1: well i think sometimes the the reason it's so appealing is that in very limited use cases you know some of those absolute things do actually work but but it's a very limited specific case and i think it's just human nature to want to apply those you know to want to look for the magic bullet if there is one so therefore people are going to be selling it to you and you just need to figure it out
2: and you've got to be aware that, you know, they it, once, once something is generic and prescriptive, then it's not going to apply to every use case. But there might be, there, like you said, there might be utility from it. You know, better practices versus worse practices. I don't like the term best practices because, you know, how do you know it's the best practice, especially in this case? But there mm-hmm. are probably things that, you know, we can create these aggregates, Um, prescriptive guidelines from, but take them with a pinch of salt.
1: Yeah. Well, it's interesting, you know, in the audio realm, there are things that we have figured out of ways to do things like reducing noise that work every time. Yeah, And that we therefore go to these tools and methods that we've come up with uh, as the first try. And if they don't work, now we have to get creative and think. But but since ninety percent of the stuff that we process works with this with this uh, solution, that's right. where we start. So, like I say, I think it's I think it's human nature to look for a silver bullet, and sometimes you can find one, but more times than not,
0: you need to think it through.
2: I'd agree with that. Yeah,
0: you know, I always use the line when I'm talking. People always talk about scaling the same way, and I'm like, look, spray scaling doesn't come in a spray can. <laughs> yeah, you right. You don't just squirt it on your servers and they go. <laughs> exactly. All right, guys. This is going to be
1: fun. Think of all the things that you would like a spray can for.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I think a lot of people see design that way. They yeah. see it as veneer. You know, how how often have you heard someone say, "Oh yeah, yeah, it hasn't it has no design yet, but we're going to get someone and they're going to prettify it." Yeah. You know, a, a, such a fundamental misunderstanding of what design is. Right. Like again, you could just imagine a, a spray can design Psht. spray boo <laughs> done.
0: <laughs>
1: Yeah, I'd like a, I'd like a. Please turn this bad food into good food spray. You know. Yeah, that'd be Psh- great, right? That'd be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that was really dumb. Spray. Psh- <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, I think that's a show.
0: I think it is too.
1: Great. All right, all, it's been great talking to you. And uh, likewise, guys. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you very much, and you too. I look forward to hearing the show once out. All right, and we'll see you next time then on the Tablet Show. It's not too much, but